This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Papa John's. Franklin Papa John's made some news this week. They are not only are they hiring 10,000 new workers, it looks like they've made some changes to their tuition reimbursement assistance program. Papa John's seems to be doing some some good things uh, here lately in the last last year or so. Yeah, they're probably the envy of not only the restaurant industry, but also uh, many industries and many employers. You know, pizza is one of the kind of the bright spots. Comfort food, contactless delivery. You know, they're they seem to be doing well. I've kind of uh, rediscovered, uh, for lack of a better term, chain pizza during this uh, during this pandemic. Used to have my little niche places, my little family-owned places, but man, I've had some some really good. Pizza Huts and some Papa John's and Domino's during this uh, during this shut-in period, and uh, I think my you know kind of changed my attitudes towards pizza. I'll tell you that, and uh, looking forward to a little Friday night pizza myself. So on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the next coronavirus relief package seems to have stalled in Congress, leaving displaced workers and business owners in a precarious position. Matt Walker, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Restaurant Association, joins us to sort it all out and help us understand what's ahead. And as a result of the uncertainty facing workers right now, operators need to be extremely cognizant of the labor relations environment and the tremendous pressure that many of their workers, and customers as well, are currently feeling. We'll take a look at how they should navigate that space. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. So each week on the podcast over, I guess, the last you know couple of months, we have been updating uh, our listeners on kind of the state of play of these federal relief packages and what's been happening in Congress as a result of covid and how the president and congressional leaders are, are negotiating you know, the next round of relief packages. Man, things are hot and heavy right now in Washington. We have uh, a lot of deliberations between the White House, the Senate Republicans, the kind of the, the, the House Democrats are kind of sitting back, waiting, waiting for the Republicans to get on the same page. And there's a lot at stake. We've got an election 100 days away. We've got unemployment benefits ending. We've got all kinds of stuff going on in Washington. So the only way to sort it out uh, is to bring in an expert and my old friend Matt Walker from the National Restaurant Association. Matt has um, been with the Restaurant Association, I think you said, Matt, seven years now at the NRA? Yeah, seven years. That's unbelievable. It's a, it's a lot of combat duty, my friend. Matt is joining us today on Working Lunch to kind of give us the latest and greatest and what's going on. It will not be a, a short report, that is for sure, because there are a lot of moving parts. And so, Matt, A, first of all, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. I know you've got a lot going on, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, with, with us here. Right at the top of the batting order, what's the process? What Where are we? What is this, the current state of play? Can you kind of help us get our arms around all the moving parts in Washington right now? Sure. I don't know if I can get all the moving parts, but we'll, we'll try. So, so as people know, the House passed their next COVID relief bill. Uh, they passed that, the HEROES Act, about a month ago, and they are calling for about $4 trillion in spending is where they currently are in terms of what they'd like to see in this next bill that is out there. On the Republican side, the bill was just released the other day. Uh, it's called the Health 
economic assistance, liability protection, and schools, or the HEALS proposal. And this is a bill that was put together by the White House as the sort of the initial salvo introductory for what the Republicans are looking for in this next COVID bill. Technically, it's a combination of bills. They introduced a bunch of individual bills that address different issues, but collectively, that's, this is how they're referring to it. So this kicks off the starting point. The parties are, are pretty far apart. Uh, there are a lot of people within uh, particularly the Republican caucus that want to try to keep as close to that $1 trillion uh, threshold number as they can. But there are others as well that recognize that it has to go, you know, further and will go further. And, and similarly, on the Democratic side, they're trying to keep closer to that $4 trillion. So there's a lot of space between the two in that regard that they need to work on to get there. Some of the key issues that have been considered to be top priority levels for negotiating. McConnell has placed a red line on liability protections, which we'll talk about in a few moments, and that is a red line for him. Um, and on the Democratic side, their, their red lines have to do with things having to do with money for states and localities and some other pieces as well. Another factor that comes into play here that, that adds a different dynamic to this whole issue is that unemployment insurance is scheduled to run out tomorrow. And as you'll, um, people will likely recall, the previous COVID relief bill included a, a, an allowance for an additional $600 a week stipend for workers who are laid off uh, at this time due to COVID and for other reasons. And that's been contentious. In, in different ways uh, from some, there's sort of two varying opinions on this. One is the $600 is fully justified and it's needed in this time. And there are a lot of people who are obviously in need of that, that money. Um, but there are also those that have significant concerns with the fact that it can create a perverse disincentive against returning to work, particularly for those who would make more on unemployment than they would to return to work. And so there is some healthy debate going on about that as we speak. Generally, and, and all the things that I say are generalizations, but, you know, it's difficult when you say Republicans, Democrats, Senate, House, every individual is different. You can't necessarily say that this is one party. But in general, Democrats in the House are calling for an extension of the $600 unemployment extra benefit, and Republicans would like to see a lower number. And there's been a lot of movement in this area. Republicans were looking at, for instance, possibly doing $200 uh, as an extra benefit and then possibly moving up to something like a 70% threshold of lost wages. But even today, in the last few hours, there's been a lot of activity around this. Senator Johnson, uh, who's a Republican, went to the floor with Senator Braun and they came out with another UI proposable unemployment insurance. And uh, Democrats objected to that offered up their own, which was basically saying, let's pass the larger House pass bill, and then the Republicans objected. And then Mitch McConnell is planning to go down, and he probably already did, to try to call up a bill to try to expand unemployment insurance and say, let's let's have amendments on this, and let's have it open, and let's have the discussion and vote. So there's a lot of political posturing between the two parties to try to figure out what they do on this issue. Regardless of what happens on UI, um, we can move forward to talking about what's sort of out there for this next bill. And I thought it might be best to focus maybe on what was just most recently released on the Republican side and then, you know, add in some of the Democratic feel that we've heard from their bill and, and others along the way. So we talked about unemployment benefits. That That is one piece that's in there. The Republican bill would also have direct payments, so stimulus payments that would go out to individuals up to 1200 for an individual. 
and $2,400 for married couples. It would also provide $500 for dependents regardless of age. Similarly, the House bill has stimulus payments that, that would be included in their bill as well. One of the pieces that was included in the Republican bill that was introduced, and Democrats in the House have also called for this, as has the National Restaurant Association, we've been very supportive of it, is to expand and enhance the employer retention tax credit. That would allow businesses to get a tax credit for retaining and, and, and keeping employees on payroll during these difficult times. And specifically, the enhancements would allow 65% of up to $30,000 in wages per employee to be able to get a tax credit for that. And that's a substantial amount of money to help to offset those costs of, of keeping people on your payroll and, and working with them. It also has, a, rev, it has a, a major change, which is very important in terms of the cap on it, because previously with the employer retention tax credit, if you have 100 or fewer employees, then you could keep someone working for you and still take advantage of this benefit. But if you had over 100 employees, you had to truly furlough them. They couldn't do any work for you. And if they did any work, then you would not be qualified for this credit. The change that's been made in this bill says that if you have 500 employees or fewer, that you could get this tax credit, even if the person physically comes in and is working and doing work. They don't have to be furloughed to the point where they're not coming in and doing work. And so that's a significant enhancement as well. Another provision in the bill that, that we uh, at the association have been calling for back since March has been for a safe and healthy workplace tax credit. This is a tax credit that would allow 50% of expenses spent on personal protective equipment to receive a tax credit on that. And, and that's critical. So, so to be more detailed, if you are a restaurant, for instance, that says, look, we're trying to comply with local mandates and we're trying to um, make sure to ensure the safety of our workers and the people who visit here, and here are some of the costs that, that we've incurred as a result of that. You can get a tax credit to offset those costs. So what are those types of costs? It could be everything from physical configuration changes, maybe putting plexiglass in, maybe making uh, changes to put in a drive-in window if you didn't have it before, or other types of changes to your space to do outdoor seating. It could be personal protective equipment for people to wear, face masks. It could be cleaning supplies and having the work done in terms of cleaning and disinfecting. Or it could be things, too, that we really pushed for because we thought it was important, things like software and other types of technology to allow for different types of processing of payments in a more safe method or to allow for more delivery and takeout and other things as well. So we're very supportive of that tax credit. So you, you did a real nice job, but without even me asking, of, of kind of prioritizing what the industry and, and what your team is working on. And I know Congress, we saw in the CARES Act, you know, and we've seen some of these other COVID relief acts that, you know, there's a lot of kind of posturing, infighting, and we're, we're miles apart. And then it seems like in a very quick window, a deal gets hammered out, right? And so looking into your crystal ball, obviously now we're, as I mentioned before, in the, in the top, we're, you know, closer to an election, have all that. We have a little bit more of infuting within parties on this than we had on some of the other ones. But you know, in your crystal ball, do you do you see this being reconciled very quickly? You, you mentioned unemployment benefits ending tomorrow. Do you see this reconciling itself very quickly, or do you see a protracted many weeks process going forward? Yeah. So there's sort of two or three pathways that something could take relative to this next COVID relief bill. The one piece, which was the approach that originally had been planned, was for Secretary Mnuchin and the administration to negotiate with Pelosi and Schumer and with McConnell, um, largely to try to come up with 
a plan for a larger COVID relief bill. And the timeline for that really, people talked about the end of this month, but no one really believed that that was a real deadline. They were really looking to the end of next week to be able to get this done. So the first week in August, the Senate was already scheduled to be there. Unfortunately, because people are still so far apart, that timeline is flipped, and so it will be extremely difficult to get to a deal in that timeline. So what does that mean? So there's a few different options. One option is to stay here and plow through it and stick around, and it means that you have to be here a second week in August to do that, to try to get it done. Uh, the other option would be to do what people refer to sometimes as a skinny bill, which would be to have something that just includes the ones that everyone can sort of agree on up front or some of the most key pieces and get that done in the next few weeks and then come back in September and try to take a bigger bite out of the apple um, and try to get a bigger bill. I think that there will be a lot of pressure on Congress not to go home without getting something bigger done. Uh, but the question is just, can they do so? The House, for instance, may recess and come back uh, if a deal is put into place, and I think that that's, that's something they could do. That's a really long, drawn-out way to say that this could be done. There's a lot of different ways this could happen. I think this is a multi-week process before they get to anything bigger if it's going to be a big bill versus a skinny bill. Okay, so let me kind of pivot and, and talk a little bit more about the, the political ramifications and who's on the hook to deliver and for different constituencies. And kind of, you know, obviously the election is the backdrop of all this. But what, what do the Republicans have to do to look like, quote unquote, the winner in this process? And conversely, what do the Democrats have to achieve to look like, quote unquote, the winner? Or can both sides win in this process? You know, it's a good question. I think that both sides can win in this process. Both sides can lose in this process. I think it's going to be really difficult for either side to win. But in my mind, the best way for them to win is to come together and get to an agreement. Right now, we're still in the political posturing phase, right? And I think that for Republicans, what they would like to do is to say, look, we held the number down. We didn't go too, too high because we do think of long-term issues. But in my mind, and this is just me speaking, I think that, that there's got to be a willingness to come up from their initial number um, because I do think that there are, it, that this bill needs to be a little bit broader and include some extra pieces that are in there. I think that for the Democrats, they'll view it as a win if they get you know, money for states and localities and those types of pieces. And if they get a healthy amount of what was in their underlying bill for tax credits and others, that that will be a win on their side and that they'll be happy and that they'll be able to go home and say, look, we're willing to spend more and, and, and do more in that regard. At the end of the day, I think there are going to be people that are going to lose out on some of the key issues they have. It's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in terms of pieces like uh, the House is interested in making sure that there's a component in here on uh, mail voting. And if something is in there on that, then they'll be able to claim a victory. So, you know, the, the answer is not easy. I think that the best solution, frankly, is if you get to a point where there's enough consensus that you pass something on a fairly bipartisan basis. I do think that there's a risk of a bill coming out that will, particularly in the Senate, splinter off a lot of the Republican caucus. So they may have to do this as a mere necessity to get, get a lot of Democrats on board and Republicans together to try to pass this with a good threshold. And, and let me ask you a couple of odd questions and I'll, I'll let you go. I've taken enough of your time. But, you know, the audience, you know, our audience is diverse. Obviously, it's a major proportion of it in, in the restaurant industry. But, you know, there are a lot of folks on here that may be members of a restaurant association, your association. They may be members of the IFA. They may be members of American Hotel and Lodging, U.S. Chamber, NFIB. There are a lot of 
a lot of different groups. Are is the National Restaurant Association in are, are all those groups in general agreement and lockstep? Is there any you know notable divisions between maybe what the chamber wants or the retailers want or what the restaurants or are we all are you all kind of on the same page? Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think the different groups highlight different issues, right? So uh, for different for different groups, liability reform might be the number one issue for them, whereas that's a an issue that that is definitely a priority of ours as well. But maybe if you had to rank order it, it might be one or two levels down. But in general, I think there's broad support for getting a more robust package. I think that the the payment protection program that is going to be included in this bill likely is something that has a lot of support from across industries. It's uh, something that has been a critical tool. Uh, as scarred as it is and as many problems as it has, it, it has been helpful. And a second round of PPP funds for those that have been the most harmed, I think, is going to be really a key linchpin in this bill that all kinds of associations are working together collectively to ensure that we can try to secure. And what's critical for us is that we look at how that's structured because there are some really important changes that will need to be made to the existing version of the bill to make sure that as many restaurants as possible can partake in that program and get a second round of PPP funds, which could help them substantially. All right. And one last question in, in, in kind of two parts. But if you were Matt Walker and you were a sole proprietor, restaurant owner, you know, Topeka, Kansas, wherever, what's the one or two things in this legislation you'd be most watching out for? Yeah. So I think that the pieces, it, it depends upon how you are structured. I think that if you took a PPP round, the ability to get a second round of PPP funds could be critical to you. Uh, the maximum loan amount looking like it may be $2 million. The ability to get $2 million loan through the PPP program and have, have the forgiveness piece to it is absolutely critical. I think that that is a key, key piece in this bill. I think that depending upon how you are structured, the employer attention tax credit could be something that would be truly invaluable to you as well. And then, and then there's some of the other pieces that I think could, could be helpful to you along the way collectively. I think that you've got a lot of little pieces where you take a business credit here and a tax credit there and collectively it helps. Okay. Conversely, same question. If you're Matt Walker and you're the CEO of one of the larger, you know, one of the largest restaurant brands, uh, what are the one or two things you're watching most closely? You know, I, it's harder to say, again, based on how they're structured and what people are willing to take in. I think ERTC has some good positive pieces in there that could be very helpful because it allows for people to use the credit at a pretty high number. There's also some some discussions out there about the potential to have something of a more long-term, low-interest, loan program that people may want to participate in. And, and you know, instantly the thought is, well, I don't need more debt right now. No one wants more debt. But one thing that they're trying to discuss behind the scenes is if there could be a program that could be broadened out that would allow people to take essentially a loan with maybe even 1% to 2% interest rate and not have to make any payments for a year or two and have a lot of favorable terms on it. And that's the type of thing that for those that are in need of liquidity could be, could be something that would be positive depending upon how big they are or how small. Man, uh, never, never a dull moment in, in our nation's capital, Matt. Um, well, first of all, thank you for that very detailed synopsis of what is a very complicated uh, piece of legislation, not only in terms of substance, but the politics around it. Hopefully, it will the, the politics will work itself out and we can get to a deal and maybe you can take a break. I don't think, I think a lot of people have been somewhat displaced in, in their normal work rhythms 
uh, over the last few months with this COVID. But I think you guys have been working harder than ever trying to do two jobs at once. A, do your normal job and try to keep this industry afloat. So thank you for uh, all that you're doing in the National Restaurant Association um, and really appreciate um, you know what you're doing and taking the time to join us today. Great. Thank you. And thanks for all you do. Well, Franklin, that was a, a, a long conversation with, with Matt Walker, but man, are we lucky that the industry has that guy uh, on Capitol Hill. He is knowledgeable and hardworking and, you know, for a DC guy, he's actually a really likable person. So, you know, we've, we've hit the lottery there, but he's excellent at what he does. And Franklin, you know, he, he was very thorough, as we heard, on the, the mechanics of the bill, the process and what, what the meat of the matter is, what's, what are the details. And we talked a little bit, we touched on about the kind of the political sensitivity of it, especially vis-a-vis the fact that the election is, you know, so close. What is your take in terms of the electoral politics context that this bill finds itself. It's hard to see a scenario where Republicans look good and Republicans get a win out of this electorally. And they essentially lost a week debating within their own caucus. And now we've lost another week debating within their caucus. And Democrats have stood back and said, these guys over here. Now, you know, McConnell and and others have stood up and rhetorically blamed Democrats, but I'm not sure how much that resonates if you look at most of the news coverage, which most you know people are consuming, I think a lot of the blame is placed on Republicans. The impacts of you know the, the stalled efforts in Congress are going to be real for for voters and for families. And kind of conventional wisdom is you know historically voters' mindset and where the economy is and the way they vote is is generally you know kind of three months out to so that hundred day mark, which we pass now. You know where. I don't know, 95 days or whatever from Election Day. I don't know that that exactly holds up during a, a pandemic. You know, this is a very unique. There's not a lot. There's just no precedent for, you know, holding a presidential election during a, a pandemic. There's very little precedent for major legislative packages being brokered and passed this close to an Election Day and, and so seeing what the impacts will be. But it's just hard to see how Republicans get a win out of this, particularly because even though we're 90 some days from Election Day, the first ballots will be cast in just a few weeks. You know, so absentee ballots in North Carolina start going out September 4th. Pennsylvania and Michigan are shortly thereafter September 14th. So we are six weeks away. You know, if it takes another two or three weeks and Republicans are continuing to get blamed for not being able to pull together this relief package, then, you know, voters are going to be going to pick their absentee ballots up out of the mail. And and by the way, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Michigan, the first three states, those are consequential swing states. So it's just hard at this juncture today, this may change next week, if Monday Republicans come out and the White House comes out with their proposal and Democrats take that and Republicans can take a win and the interruption in unemployment benefits is short. The stimulus checks go out quickly, and PPP2 gets stood up quickly. And so we prevent kind of a cratering and the news coverage reflecting that Republicans own that cratering. You know, that could all happen, but right now today, it's just hard to see how that happens. So this close to Election Day, you want to be buttoned up and roll out your proposal and have it go through and then be able to go campaign on it. And I just can't see how Republicans 
will be in a position to do that. That spells trouble for them in a cycle where I think all indicators are they're already in trouble. Yeah, and you, you and I talked offline, you know, on this subject, I believe yesterday, you know, and I think in a normal election cycle, quote unquote, what a laughable term normal is, but in a normal election cycle, that would have some real connotations. I think with what's been going on with the the pandemic and with the, the social unrest in the streets, there aren't that many gettable votes out there. I mean, people are pretty entrenched where they are and the performance of Congress on this particular piece of legislation, I think is, is going to have less of an electoral effect than it might have in other cycles. I'm not saying it will have no effect. I'm not saying that, but we're just at a different place. And, you know, usually those last hundred days in Congress, people are watching, blah, blah, blah. We're in a different 150,000 deaths. We got protests in the streets. You know, I don't think there are that many votes for, quote unquote, for sale that will be swayed by this benefit package or that. But segueing from that, Franklin, this industry conversely has a lot of employees that are directly affected by what happens with this legislation, with these unemployment benefits, the, a myriad of other things in these packages. If you're an operator, what, what, what are some of the labor relations things that operators need to be thinking about in the context of these next few weeks? Yeah, and I'm going to push back on what you just said a little bit as I, as I go into that. You know, usually the stuff that's flying around Capitol Hill and, and candidates are talking about on the campaign trail are theoretical and ethereal, and that is not the case today in this environment. People are dying. People are seeing their income slash or being laid off. The economy is cratering. And so there are real impacts today and stuff that policymakers are working on. And so that that brings a little different dynamic to the election cycle where this is not you cannot just stand back on your partisan talking points and ride this through. There are real things happening around kitchen tables that policymakers need to be attentive to and respond to. And it doesn't take but two or three percent of the electorate in any one swing state to make the difference between a landslide for one candidate or a landslide for the other. So, you know, anyway, so I I think that this will be consequential. And I know, and I'm going to answer your question directly now, Joe, it definitely is going to be consequential for the frontline workforce in this country. I mean, there's been much discussion about how this pandemic has disproportionately impacted and fallen on kind of frontline workers. And the lower you are on the socioeconomic ladder, the more you've been impacted. The higher you are at the socioeconomic ladder, the less you're impacted because typically you have a white-collar job that you can work remotely. And you're in, you know, an, an industry or sector that is less directly impacted and has been propped up by a lot of the federal money that's been pumped into the economy. Frontline workers have been laid off more. They have to go into work more and risk exposure. They are in circulation more. And disproportionately, those frontline jobs are held by minority communities. So all these factors combine together to mean frontline workers in restaurant and and retail locations are feeling a lot of stress, a lot of pain points. And if they're one earner in a multiple earner family, in the coming weeks, they're going to see no more stimulus checks. They're going to see the kicker that was on top of 
the unemployment benefits go away. They're going to potentially see unemployment benefits totally go away because the states are going to run out of money. And even when this federal bill is passed, and I do believe that something will be passed, even when that's passed, there's going to be an interruption. And so these households that have been kept afloat by this federal money kind of trickling down and, and, and trickling in, that's all of a sudden going to disappear at a time when kids maybe can't go back to school because school is delayed. It's a delayed start or it's moved to virtual. And so kids are home, perhaps not having access to the free lunch meals, the, the free meals they would have gotten if they were going into school. So there's a whole stew here of pressures that are going to be on frontline workers and their families that I think employers need to be cognizant of, that the people that are coming into your workplace every day, the folks that are coming into work every day are facing unprecedented pressures and challenges, and probably the managers are too, right? So I just think I don't know that that changes anything in the workplace in terms of benefits and, you know, do you start doing loans to, to workers to help them get through this. If you can do that type of stuff, that's great. But I think more what I'm I'm trying to express here is that I think tone and tenor within the workplace right now is, is critically important. You have to obviously be totally buttoned up in the health and safety front, but being a stickler and authoritarian and disciplinarian and, and other stuff, maybe not the right time because you just have to be cognizant of what workers are going through and, and, and all the pressures they're feeling right now in this moment and for the coming weeks until this the, the money starts coming back through and, and things start to turn around and loosen back up. Those are all good points, you know, tone, tenor, context, things we talk about a lot on this on this podcast. And, and you're right. I mean, this employee, the, the average worker right now, the stresses and pools they're under, both financially, you know, they don't know if their kids are going back to school. It's just chaos. And I, and I think these are the times when management missteps can escalate and, and snowball, you know, a little misstep here or there could snowball out of control into a, a public story or a potential labor unrest and so forth. So it's a very delicate time. And to your point, a good time for managers to to kind of go slow, think twice, and make sure they're taking all this external stuff uh, into their decision-making process. So that's so that's good, good counsel. Yeah, and I, I would say third-party groups, Pfeiffer 15 and others, are very cognizant of these these dynamics, and they will be looking for opportunities to come in and, and take advantage of managers that are not striking the right tone and tenor and, and recognizing the pressures that the that workers are under right now. So it's just, it's an important time for a lot of different reasons and a, and a lot of things, but, you know, labor relations right now, I, I think is just so critically important. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And for the first time in a long time, Franklin, we will not start with uh, COVID-19-related legislation, since Matt Walker uh, gave us the, the soup to nuts on that. We will start where we traditionally have done in the past on wages. And uh, the big news out of California, Gavin Newsom this week. Yeah, he's going to allow the automatic increase in the minimum wage to go into effect. So that's It'll go up to $14 an hour January 1 and then 15 by uh, 2022. We've seen a lot of states doing this and going the route of – and cities as well and counties 
allowing these uh, minimum wage increases to actually go into effect rather than taking the off-ramp. Kind of been surprised by the number that have, have chosen to go that route, actually. Yeah, they have a, a hearing process in July, mid-year, kind of a mid-year review where they, I mean, I'm talking about California specifically, where they assess the, the environment and whether the increase is warranted. And uh, I don't think this is much of a surprise. The business community California Restaurant Association heavily arguing, lobbying that the the, the, the increase shouldn't go forward, but uh, I don't think it's a surprise that, that he proceeded with that. Uh, Colorado, there's another hearing coming up later in the month of August on their recently passed minimum wage increase. Same deal. They're going to consider whether or not that it should go up as scheduled to $12 an hour in January 1, and... Uh... I would be surprised if Jared Polis's appointees don't decide to increase the minimum wage, but we'll see where that goes. Again, the majority of states have decided to keep these increases in place. And speaking of no surprises, Governor Sununu in New Hampshire has his veto chainsaw running at high speed. Yeah, this week, last week or the week before it was paid leave. Uh, this week, it's minimum wage, and the legislation would have called for an increase to $10 an hour next year and uh, $12 an hour by 2023. That's not totally kind of crazy, but um, he vetoed it, uh, as he has done in the past. Frank, isn't it, I find it interesting, you know, in New Hampshire, that, that bill passed the legislature, you know, early in the spring, just like the paid leave bill. It's amazing how much time under New Hampshire law, he has to sign it, veto it, or let it go into effect without a signature. It's a, that's a, it's a surprisingly big window. Uh, Franklin, let's go uh, down under Australia. We don't always report on international developments, but when they have connotations for American businesses, uh, I think it's important. Uh, DoorDash had a little uh, kind of change in policy this week. Yeah, they, they basically are setting up sort of a, a portable benefits system in cooperation with the transportation union down there for their independent contractors. So it's a joint agreement between the parties to to basically set up what looks like kind of a traditional employment type benefit structure. And theoretically, since this is, you know, being done cooperatively as as an agreement between parties and not necessarily through the legislative process, Theoretically, you could just pop that model over into the into the states and do it tomorrow. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see if this or some version of this migrates back this way. Yeah, it reminds me, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, you know, that we spent years in the interchange fee credit card conversations, you know, back and forth with the, you know, with the banks and the credit card companies. And, you know, they ultimately lost because they were lobbying that they couldn't do X, Y, and Z when they were doing it, that exact same thing in all the parts of the world. Uh, but somehow, miraculously, they couldn't do it here in America. So that the fact that DoorDash can do this in Australia, again, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but certainly opens the door for the question, well, why can't you do it here? So we're going to, it's a, I think that's an important marker in the conversation. We're going to watch that. Franklin, NLRB, interesting uh, proposed rule out this week. Yeah, employers have not been happy with the way the board has has done this the past couple of years. This was an Obama-era precedent that will be reversed now under this new proposed rule. And essentially, the, the, the current operating requirements of the board were if a union comes and asks, which it can do under law, it's called the Excelsior list, they come and ask for the contact information of all employees so that they can reach out to them during a union organizing drive, the employer is required to provide that list. And under the Obama era rule, it was not just the list that was in the employee files, right, that they had put down as their contact information. Any email address or any phone number 
that any employee of the company had anywhere, essentially the company would be required to go find that and give that to them. So if an employee put a home phone number on the employee file, but then would text back and forth with the manager around schedule changes, the expectation would be that all those, all that different contact information would be gathered up and provided to the union and employers argued and employees in some cases argued that this was kind of a violation of their, their privacy, that they should be able to provide the number and contact information in the master file that, you know, would be given to third party groups upon request and not any shred of contact information that existed anywhere would be pulled and, and handed over without their knowledge. So essentially this rule, that, that was a burdensome requirement on employers and opened them up to all sorts of unfair labor practice complaints and, and gave some leverage to the union. And this rule would essentially reverse that, if you will. And, and so the, the assumption is that, you know, employers will provide the contact information as their primary contact information. That will be what is required for the employer to turn over, and this will be applauded by uh, the employer community. So the rule has been released. It will now go into public comment, which, you know, is around 60 days, right? Um, and then the board will release a final rule sometime after they have time to review all the comments. So we're in the process here. Uh, they'll definitely want to pop this thing out before January 1, and they should be on track to do that. And Franklin, uh, pivoting to the delivery space, uh, Oakland, California this week followed, I don't know what took them so long, but followed a lot of their Bay Area neighbors in the in the commission capping space. Yeah, 15% cap on third-party delivery fees, pretty pretty standard at this point in uh, in the Bay Area. And the East Coast, San Francisco, Philadelphia uh, did similar Something similar, right? 10%. Any additional charges will be capped at 5%. So the delivery fee cap is 10%. So a little little lower threshold than we've seen in some other cities. But uh, yeah, this issue keeps uh, popping up all over the place, both East Coast and West. And speaking of West Coast, uh, not really the coast, but uh, it, it appears that uh, Clark County, Nevada, which uh, is where Las Vegas is, uh, I think that'll be on the city council agenda next next week for an initial hearing on a potential cap there as well. Franklin, staying in the delivery space, Los Angeles County doing something interesting. We've talked about it vis-a-vis uh, alcohol, but um, what's Los Angeles County proposing uh, in the delivery space? Yeah, and if you'll remember, the city and the county have both passed delivery fee caps at this point. So um, they have waded into this space, and anytime. L.A. City or County wades into a space, they're likely to hang around and, and take a swim for a little while. So that's what they're doing here. So they're now looking at a countywide requirement for food delivery workers to obtain a food handler certification and essentially make these uh, delivery workers subject to the training and certification process that is often, you know, we're accustomed to in the restaurant industry. This is something that has been discussed and brought up a number of times, and it directly connects to the liability issue. Um, a lot of restaurateurs have been worried even prior to the pandemic, and, you know, it was an emerging area of policy conversation is, you know, once the food leaves our building, you know, we want the delivery company to have full liability for, you know, the, the care of that food. And we don't want that liability to extend. And so part of the process of uh, breaking that, that chain of liability, if you would be, or one of the solutions would be, is requiring delivery drivers to get that food handling certificate and have that training. 
And it looks like L.A. County is headed down that path. They will be discussing it next week. Um, they're going to hear a report on the issue. And once they start hearing reports, there's usually legislation that follows. So I wouldn't be surprised if something is done in, in L.A. County in this space. And I wouldn't be surprised if other municipalities pick up on that. Yeah, Franklin, it, it seems like that's not only a political, you know, since the restaurant associations own most of that certification, you know, that's, an, that's a financial opportunity if crafted properly for for the associations, I but I that kind of certification, you know, I, I think in a broader strategic sense, we would be for, um, at least I would argue we should be for because it reinforces the health and safety of our of our supply network, and I think you know we'd be encouraging that I would think. But uh, pivoting to alcohol, uh, Franklin, uh, Alaska, that basically extended their temporary order. Yeah, you can now uh, until November fifteenth there will be a temporary allowance of curbside pickup, alcohol, and uh, delivery of beer and wine when included with an order of food. So uh, you can uh, cruise on by and your dog sled now and, <laughs> and pick up your, your liquor. So that's, that's a positive development for uh, for the industry. I, I didn't think about it going going on your dog sled for your curbside pickup. That, that's fantastic. And in Nashville, Tennessee, we talked about Tennessee and compliance challenges uh, a few weeks ago on this podcast, but uh, uh, it looks like an extension is, is happening there as well, correct? Correct. The Metro Beer Board, which I love that name. That's just great. The Metro Beer Board extended the temporary allowance of curbside pickup and home delivery of alcohol through October 31, right into Halloween. So you'll still be able to get that uh, that booze for Halloween guys in uh in Nashville. Yeah, I, I I think it is interesting that, um, you know, again, the, the, we talked to Ed Nauseam about it, but the, the industry continues to demonstrate how important this piece of the of the puzzle is to keeping a lot of these restaurants open. And so, but, you know, again, we've got we've to really commit to that, that, that compliance space. But um, pretty quick scorecard this week. Franklin, I think Congress is in one more week. I know that the Senate comes back next week, but um, there's not a whole lot of time going back to where we started this conversation to to get this COVID stuff through the door before they go for August recess, if they do. And I think, they'll, yeah, I think they'll stay until, I mean, the House Democrats have said they'll stay. And if House Democrats stay, then Senate Republicans have to stay, you know, more or less. But I think they'll they'll hang around. But, yeah, you know, they all want to get back in campaign. So for a lot of reasons, they want to get something done and, and get back on a plane and get get back in district. So, you know, we've got a break. And then, of course, <laughs> government's going to run out of money between now and Election Day. So they're going to have to come back and do some sort of funding patch. Normally, that, that would be relatively non-controversial. They would do a funding patch at current levels through Election Day and then, you know, kick the can down the road for a big funding fight after Election Day. But, I mean, theoretically, some of this other stuff that doesn't get addressed before August recess can get lumped into that spending fight. I mean, who knows? It's crazy right now. But yeah, we'll have to keep our eyes on D.C. I mean, you know, usually kind of what's going on up in, in the D.C. Capitol doesn't affect your kind of, you know, every day, but it it certainly does right now. And so everyone will have their, their eyes glued to the television and the C-SPAN to see what happens. Well, it'll be it'll be interesting. Of course, we'll be here uh, next week to report on it as well. So another scorecard, another week. And um, we'll, as I say, we'll have more for you next week.
So Franklin, as we as we close out the show this week, it's notable that um, a nationally known uh, restaurateur turned politician, uh, Herman Cain, passed away this week, uh, evidently from complications relating to the COVID-19 virus. A lot of back and forth on Herman. He became kind of larger in his post-restaurant life than he was in his in his restaurant world, but he was a former CEO of the National Restaurant Association, Franklin. What is your take on, on Herman's legacy, for lack of a better term? Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, there's Herman Cain and, and Andy Puzder, and there's been these, and Howard Schultz, you know, that we've, been, we've had this crop of, of restaurateurs and restaurant industry leaders that have stepped into the political fray and, and, and made waves and had an impact. I think, generally speaking, it is good for us to have restaurant leaders that are stepping forward, regardless of their political stripe um, and, and being leaders in this space, just given the importance of the industry to the American economy, uh, you know, we, we should have more industry leaders that are that are serving in those those positions. And so, I, you know, you got to tip your hat to all of them, Herman Cain included, for, you know, kind of carrying the banner. So he certainly uh, kind of broke ground in, in a lot of different ways. And uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of the next generation and the, the next crop of restaurant leaders and what their political stripes and what, what the issues they tackle and how they lead, what that looks like. So, yep, the industry lost kind of a, I guess, a uh, in the political space at least, kind of a, a trendsetter and a, and a groundbreaker this week. You know, on a personal level, I knew Herman. Uh, I'm not going to pretend I knew Herman well, but uh, during his tenure at the National Restaurant Association, I was at Darden and lobbied with Herman and countless meetings with Herman and traveled with Herman, did political events with Herman. So, yeah, I, I knew him fairly well. You know, his tenure came at a time when the restaurant industry and the association needed a higher political profile uh, and he was able to move the ball forward significantly uh, for the association and the industry in that space. Uh, we have different types of leaders these days in terms of the mold of, of, of Don Sweeney and Tom Bennett in terms of you know the, the financial acumen of running the, 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 the finances of the association. So the, the things have pivoted. But Herman certainly served the industry well during his time, and you know we'll, we will look back on, I think, Herman's tenure at the National Restaurant Association. It wasn't always the smoothest, but certainly the NRA and the industry was in the conversation. So on that note, we will sign off and see you next week. 